I was taking a graduate level acting class, one by one going down the line of these professors, they critiqued you. And when I got to the professor who was my personal advisor for the course, his response was, well, you may make it on your looks, but you'll never make it on your talent. For Nashville choreographer Diane Kimbrough, her route to a career as a professional dancer was influenced by her family history. A descendant of Ukrainian Jews who fled during the pogroms of the Russian Empire, for Diane, leaning on resilience in the face of scrutiny is practically an inherited trait. My dad's father lived in Russia. He was in Ukraine. And at 18 years old, the police knocked on his door looking for him. Imagine this chutzpah coursing through your veins as you wait tables between plies and long stretches on feet meant to tap through Fosse's musicals. Imagine countless auditions to quiet your professor's parting words. You might make it on your looks, but never on your talent. That's poet Patricia Alice Albrecht. Today, she speaks with Diane Kimbrough about the precarity of breaking into the world of professional dance, how a family history of self-reliance helped propel her forward, and how her decades as a professional entertainer have given her the courage to face down intolerance and hatred. Then Patricia braids the parallel of Diane's ancestral and professional histories into poetry. From Nashville Public Radio, PRX, and the Porch Writers Collective, I'm Joshua Moore. This is Versify. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to support this work, you can make a donation at WPLN.org. In the field of genetics, it's no secret that the traits which compose our identity, particularly at the cellular level, are heritable. Body type, hair color, tone of voice, each quality inscribed in the latticework of peptides that compose our DNA. And in recent years, compelling research in the field of epigenetics has begun to suggest that that quality of inheritance can extend even further beyond our physical characteristics than previously thought. Studies of the offspring of Holocaust survivors suggest that, like other heritable traits, trauma can be passed down from one generation to the next. Begging the question, if stress can be transmitted transgenerationally, might the same be true of resilience? And that question of heritable endurance was front of mind as Diane Kimbrough and poet Patricia Alice Albrecht sat down to have a conversation at Congregation Micah during an event honoring the lives of Holocaust victims and survivors. I'm Diane Kimbrough. Patricia Alice Albrecht. I'm so excited to meet you today. And I know you said you had some stories about hope, or I'm wondering if you have one about yourself. Well, I do. I I come from a line of people, I don't know if you're familiar with the word chutzpah. Yeah. But, you know, it's that combination mm-hmm. of charisma and grit. And um, I come from that on both sides of my family. My dad's father lived in Russia. He was in Ukraine. And at 18 years old, the police knocked on his door looking for him. Diane's grandfather was a member of Ukraine's Jewish population during the 19th century Russian pogroms, a series of coordinated attacks against Semitic communities that swept Ukraine and southern Russia from 1881 to 1884, following the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. 
often sanctioned by the state and locally organized, the pogroms, which literally means to wreak havoc or demolish violently, saw the destruction of hundreds of Jewish households and businesses, as Jews were victimized and even murdered by their countrymen. So when Diane's grandfather heard that knock on the door, he wasn't about to hang around long enough to see what might happen next. He took off on foot that night with the clothes on his back and he walked across Europe and he worked in a pretzel factory in England to earn his way to the United States. He got to Ellis Island and they handed him a loaf of bread, a stick of salami and $5 and a ticket to Mason City, Iowa. Because he didn't speak English, he got off at Marshalltown, Iowa. Wow. And he was out of money and out of food and he just went around knocking on doors near where the train tracks were, Mm -hmm. asking for a meal, and found some other Russian immigrants there who took him in and said they needed a minion, which is 10 men, to hold a Sabbath service that night, and if he would stay, they would feed him. And my family's been there ever since. Because he had no source of income, Diane's grandfather had to get creative in finding a way to support himself. He found out that there was a rendering plant not far from Marshalltown. And when he encountered an animal carcass by the side of the road, he saw his opportunity. And he picked up this animal carcass and took it to the rendering plant and got money for it. And he realized that he could pick up things and do something with it. was like the original recycler. Mm-hmm. And he did enough of that that he got a horse and then he got a wagon. And then he bought a little business and he started... Um, Uh, getting furs from trappers and old newspapers and pieces of metal from farmers. And this business has been in my family for over 100 years. It went was passed down to my dad, passed down to my youngest older brother. Did you know your grandfather? Of course I knew my grandfather, yeah. Oh, my gosh. But it was that, you know, I'll do anything and I'll just make it work. And that's kind of what you know, I think was in my DNA to push me to do what I wanted to do. But it wasn't just the men in Diane's family line who contributed to that quality of perseverance. And it kind of comes from my maternal side as well, because my mother's grandmother uh, was born in Austria, and her family put her on a ship by herself with nothing but a tag on pinned to her coat with her name and the name of the person that was to receive her and sent her also to America. And she got here. She was raised by some family friends and uh, grew up, and she met a man whose last name was Greenberg. She married him, and they had three children. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was the youngest of those three children. And her husband, Mr. Greenberg, passed away. And she eventually met another man who wanted to marry her. And she said, and mind you, this is late 1800s. She said, that's fine. I'll marry you, but you have to take my last name. I'm not taking yours because I have three children with this last name, which would have been unheard of for a woman to do back then. And so I think about, you know, the kind of backbone that a woman like that had or the kind of backbone that my paternal grandfather had to sort of, you know, just keep going in the world and making their way and doing whatever they were led to do is part of what makes me who I am. And Diane isn't the only Kimbrough descendant who's had to call upon that well of familial resolve. I grew up shortly after 
World War II. So there was a lot of fear still. And I remember my parents saying, be careful about telling people, you know, they may not like you because you're Jewish. My parents uh, on their honeymoon night went to a hotel in northern Wisconsin and walked up to get their room for their honeymoon with a sign on the front desk saying no Jews allowed. Oh my goodness. Wow. And that was 1942. And when I was in college, I went up to get a pizza at the well-known pizza place on the campus and uh, was standing in line waiting to get my to-go pizza. And some guy that was in line next to me turned around and he said, you're a Jew, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, I can tell because your eyes are shifty. I'll never forget that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. I think that was 1973. Jews weren't allowed at our country club till I was in sixth grade. And so, you know, feeling that exclusion growing up, I knew that was a real thing. While the potential risk for approval of her Jewish identity was alive in Diane's imagination growing up, it wasn't the sole focus of her attention. From a young age, Diane had a passion for the arts, taking dance lessons since she was old enough to walk. But as she grew older, the opportunities for more advanced training were slim. So she shifted her focus to more conventional pursuits. When I was a kid, I always thought I was going to grow up doing something in the sciences, like be a doctor or whatever. And so that was it. That's what I was going to do. And I uh, got off to college and uh, had never failed anything in my life before, but I flunked college algebra. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, boy, on top of all this, I'm going to have to take quantitative and qualitative analysis. So uh, I don't like chemistry that well. I think I'll change my major. And my dad had always said, um, do what you love in this world. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about making a living. Do what you love and the money will come. So here I was in college and um, I called my parents and I said, "Um, I hate to tell you, but I think I'm going to change my major. And my dad said, to what? (laughs) And I said, to theater. And I just saw your chin drop, right? Because that's like what every parent would do. But my dad said, what took you so long? (gasps) What was the the transformative moment when you decided you couldn't do, you didn't want to do science or that you flunked that when you thought theater was it? Well, I just knew that it felt amazing to be on stage. And I was always attracted to things that had dance in them. You know, all the movie musicals, all the Broadway musicals. Um, My parents were phenomenal ballroom dancers. And so I used to see them dress up on Saturday nights and go out dancing. And so it was magical to me, you know, putting on costumes and lipstick. And, you know, it was this really special other world. Yes. And so that feeling of being on stage and in this magical, you know, setting for a moment, that was just transformative. I wanted that. Diane quickly realized, however, that since leaving dance lessons behind as a child, there was a lot she'd need to learn to make it in the world of musical theater. So here I am in college, having had a gap in my training, um, and I really had to play catch-up to uh, to really, you know make up for those years when my body was developing, but I wasn't dancing. So I took every class I could get my hands on and actually um, worked in 
professional theater companies for two summers. I was ahead of the rest of the people my age, so I was taking a graduate-level acting class as the only undergraduate in the class. And we had to go in for our final exam for this independent study that I was doing. So I went in there and I did my first monologue and somewhere in the middle of that monologue, I forgot my line. I just said, oh, excuse me, you know, can I start over? And uh, one of the professors said, sure, go ahead. So I started over and doggone if I didn't blank on the exact same line. And and one of the other ones chimed in and said, why don't you just go on to your second monologue? Because usually when that happens at the same place, you're going to get stuck there. So I did. I went on and I sailed through the second one. And then one by one, going down the line of these professors, they critiqued you. And when I got to the professor who was my personal advisor for the course, his response was, well, you may make it on your looks, but you'll never make it on your talent. You're kidding. No, and that was like, you know, a train driving through my heart. It was just, you know, it just sucked the air out of me. Oh, my gosh. Oh. So anyway, I just thought, okay, well, I'm just going to have to prove him wrong. Shaken but unwilling to concede so easily, Diane completed the course, graduated early, and moved to St. Louis to continue her studies in dance. But unfortunately, her acting professor's asinine remarks weren't the last of the unsolicited critiques. I met a guy who was a dancer, and um, and I continued to train, and I thought I was pretty good. Um, the night before we were getting ready to leave to move to New York later that summer, we were having dinner, and he said to me, you know, you really don't have what it takes to make it. What? That's kind of what I thought also, because I thought, okay, well, I've really improved, and I'm doing okay. But um, anyway, so we headed off to New York, got an apartment. Um, This was in the late 70s, so it was the years of the Bob Fosse and Michael Bennett musicals on Broadway. And in the trade papers that came out every Thursday morning, there were auditions listed, and it was always for girls five, seven, and over, because that was those long, lanky... Bob Fosse type dancers Mm -hmm. and so I got thrown out of all kinds of auditions because even in my character shoes I was only about five five and a half Mm -hmm. but I would go anyway and I would get either thrown out or you know sent to the back of the line and um, eventually after several years of struggling you know to beat what that um, ideal girl was at that time we decided to pick up roots and move to Nashville because it was going to be the next you know, big entertainment center. When Diane arrived in Music City, she was feeling close to hopeless. After experiencing serial rejection in New York, she began to wonder if maybe she was making a mistake. Diane had primarily tried her hand at auditioning for stage productions. But not long after arriving in Nashville, she decided to go out for a casting call for the small screen. There was a television show called the Country Music Association Awards, or Country Music Awards. So I went to this audition... And went in there, did my thing with everybody, came out, and later that evening I got a phone call. And that was from the choreographer of the show, who I really knew nothing about because I wasn't into television choreographers and film choreographers, so I just knew she was the choreographer for the show. Not only did she hire me for the show, but she also hired me to be her assistant. 
But it wasn't just any run-of-the-mill television choreographer that hired Diane. She was hand-selected by Dee Dee Wood. Now, if that name doesn't ring a bell, I can't fault you. I didn't know who she was at first either. But though you might not be familiar with her given name, you've certainly been exposed to her handiwork. Supercalifragilistic, expialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Supercalifragilistic, expialidocious. I am 16, going on 17, I know that I'm naive. Dee Dee actually choreographed the movie Sound of Music and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and um, a lot of huge... Mary Poppins was another one of her productions. So Dee Dee really gave me hope. You know, she saw something in me that no one else had seen. And I remained her assistant on everything that she did coming in and out of Nashville for many years after that. And um, she, you know, was a great, great mentor of mine and taught me everything that I knew, you know, really about the serious part of the business. And I got to work with tremendous people. And from her hiring me for that one thing that she saw something in me, I've gone on to make that my life's work. Even as she was excelling in her career, Diane still faced challenges based on her identity similar to what her parents had warned her about when she was young. In the late 70s when I moved here, yeah. I had a client that used to refer to me as his little Jew girl. Wow. A client called you his little Jew girl. Mm-hmm. And he did not think there was anything wrong with that. Right. And how did you feel? Can you describe Creepy, yeah. because... Um, I believe he thought it was cute and a novelty, and I was mortified by that. Was the, Did you feel like you had a voice and could say anything or that you could not? Absolutely not. Or what would happen? Well, I needed the income, and um, I had to survive. I was on my own, and I had to survive. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you feel now that you run into these experiences now, A and or B, you, do you feel you have more of a voice? I feel like I have more of a voice. I don't run into it as frequently. Have you been ever, ever been able to use it? My voice yes. on that? Yes, I have. And what did you say? Um, I've just... In the situation. Oh, yes. I've had, you know, occasionally someone say something like, um, uh, can't you Jew them down a little? Mm-hmm. This was in the last two to three years. And I just said, excuse me, I take offense to that because I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. And the, the person that said that was completely mortified and very apologetic and even sent emails afterward. As they rounded out their conversation, Patricia asked Diane if she had any words of wisdom to offer younger dancers based on her experience in the industry. Well, one, they got to do the work. You know, um, dreaming is great, but you still have to bring it to the table. In New York, dancers are called gypsies. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of an unwritten rule that you pass along 
to others that are coming up, the gifts that were given to you, the favors that were given to you, and that mentoring. And so I've always made that a huge part of what I do to open doors for other people and to um, pass along whatever I can, whatever knowledge I have about the industry. And that really kind of grew into what I do now, which is working with recording artists on their stage presence and helping them be more of who they can be on stage and be more authentic. And that's, I, I attribute all of that success to Didi. Everybody needs a little bit of luck, you know, and, and really just keep going for it, but you've, you've got to do the work to prepare yourself. After a break, We'll hear more from Patricia and discover how she takes the heel turns, high kicks, and missteps of Diane's career and turns them into poetry. This is Versify. Hey, I'm Jacob Lewis. If you like Versify, you will love Neighbors. I'm on a quest to make sense of the human experience through the lives of the people in my community. There's something magical about getting an intimate pass into someone's world and hearing about moments that transformed them. I was shot within seconds of exiting my my car. See, what people don't realize is that we all have things that we carry that can bring us together. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and get to know your neighbors. She comes from this great history of people who are self-motivators and rising above the odds in order to survive. I think what what has struck me is the fact that she had she had something that I didn't have. And that's what strikes me. Like how could we be different if we had if we were given tools or encouragement at a younger at a younger age or if we were given a sense of confidence, how might someone be different? Her father really highly encouraged her to, you know, follow her heart. She said she comes from a family of chutzpah. And um, I think, wow, if, if I had grown up, personally, if I'd grown up with a, a little more chutzpah, how would I be dancing differently in my life today? How might our, the trajectory of our lives become even um, more pronounced and, and more helpful to other people? if we had the confidence and the courage to say it's okay to do what you love. Diane went in to listen to the Violins of Hope performance, and after the concert, she and Patricia came back together for Patricia to deliver the poem. On point. Imagine you have a scientific dream to become a doctor, but when you've flunked algebra, well, how will you get through quantitative analysis? Small-town Iowa girl succeeds at the University of Missouri as long as, growing up like your mother said, be careful who you tell you are Jewish. You learned how to scrap with three older brothers, play ball, stand up for yourself, but not to become a doctor. Imagine having a father who tells you, do what you love, and when you answer theater, he says, What took you so long? All this hoof and groove, you know. You know how to dance for your supper, and you work so hard you graduate early, then head for New York to stand, staring across the channel at Ellis Island, 
the pit stop of your father's father after he escaped as a young man from a Ukrainian pogrom and was handed a hunk of salami, a loaf of bread, and five dollars to hop a train for Iowa. Only he couldn't read English, mistakes Mason for Marshalltown, then hops off the train onto a proscenium of Russian immigrants who need him, their tenth man, to hold a minion in worship. Imagine how your grandfather found dead animals in Iowa streets, rendered their fur for horse, wagon, metal, and a place to call home. Imagine this chutzpah coursing through your veins as you wait tables between plies and long stretches on feet meant to tap through Fosse's musicals. Imagine countless auditions to quiet your professor's parting words. You might make it on your looks, but never on your talent. Imagine that there is a place for all your training, even when your dance partner murmurs, you don't have what it takes. Imagine instead how you fell in love with your parents when they shuffled up in fancy costumes each weekend to ballroom dance, how they sidestepped no Jews allowed signs on their honeymoon. Imagine you have more of their charisma and grit than the patron at the pizza shop that looked down his nose at your five feet seven with Are you a Jew? And when you whispered yes, he agrees. He could tell because your eyes are shifty. How do you imagine your life is greater than a gypsy? Hopeless. Your feet are your voice. You follow blind to Nashville, then audition for some TV show, the Country Music Awards, where Chitty Chitty Bang Bang Dee Dee Wood, queen choreographer of Mary Poppins, imagines you as her assistant, to twirl as her top choreographer, to scat through the business of dance, and set out the footlights for others to follow, so that now, when someone shows their ignorance with, can you Jew them down a little? You dance in the face of their slander, say out loud, I take offense. I am Jewish. Because you've leapt above careful, no longer afraid to tell others who you are. You have learned while you teach dreaming is great to country music singers. You know that everyone needs a little bit of luck, but you've got to do the work yourself. Wow. I love it. Thank you. I love how you blended in the stories and the uh, metaphors for dance as a person dances through their life. It's really amazing. You're quite gifted. Thank you. Thank you. There's something that I learned from a poetry teacher, uh, Bill Brown, and he says, you want to go for the emotional truth of the story so that even if the details are off, you do your best to capture what is true in the story and that's what I tried to do with what you gave me so I'm sure there's going to be some typos (laughs) I remember did I spell chutzpah right but um, this is your copy oh my goodness thank you I'm honored that I could um, that you told me your story because it is a great overcoming and there's much hope in it and there's still so much about your life that I don't know that I wanted to ask. And one of those questions is, what is your favorite form of dance? 
Oh, it's musical theater and jazz. (laughs) Yeah. Of course. Yeah. You know, because, well, my dream was always to have done a white ballet, but I didn't have the training or the body for that. But I had that compact, um, really spunky body for Mm -hmm. musical theater and jazz. So that's what spoke to me. Um, But that dream was, was to always do a white ballet. Oh, what a lovely image. I can, you know, I know, Swan Lake. Well, thank you so much for, like I said, for finding words to express the whole story. And and um, you just, you captured it beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. Versify is a production of Nashville Public Radio and The Porch, which trains our poets and hosts our storytelling events. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or sending us your feedback to versifypodcast at wpln.org. We'd love to hear from you. Editing for this episode came from WPLN's Mac Limebaugh, with additional editing by Anita Bug. The episode was written and produced by me, Joshua Moore. Carl Peterson masters the show. The audio for this episode was recorded by Luke Wiggett at Congregation Micah during their Violins of Hope concert event. The music was by Blue Dot Sessions. Versify is distributed by PRX. And tune in again to hear the beauty of how we can turn your life into poetry, one verse at a time. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.